Mark chapter 4. Read down starting in verse 35. One of Mark's stated goals. Well, let me ask it. Let me ask it this way. I'm going to demand some participation today. Remember, Mark has two primary goals in his gospel. Do you remember what those are? What are the two primary things that Mark is trying to show us? Well, ultimately, his journey is to get us to the cross, right? It's portrayed as this journey from Galilee to the cross. And he does that very rapidly. I mean, how many times does he use the word immediately, 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 immediately? So he's on the, we're on this quick journey. But he starts off and he tells us in the very first verse of the first chapter that he wants to prove to us two things. Yeah, Jesus is Messiah and he's Son of God. And so we alternate as we go through this book. We see how he does each of those. And today... He's out to prove that Jesus is God in the flesh. So he's going to show us through a series of events, or at least demonstrate for us that Jesus is not just Messiah, but that he is also the Son of God. And there's three events, three miracles. Now, because of the the length of this section, remember Mark's gospel is broken down into smaller sections. And um, the one we're looking at today is from chapter 4, verse 35, all the way to chapter 5, verse 43. So what I'm going to do is break this section down into two parts. There's three miracles that take place over these two chapters. And we're going to look at the first two today and then the next one next week. But they're all, they all kind of belong together. The three events make up one section. And so all three of these together as we look at them, we'll sort of look at this week and next week as, as one week together if that makes sense. What we really have are today... Two examples of Jesus' power and authority. One over the natural world, and then one over the spiritual world. Next week, he's going to demonstrate his power and authority over disease and death. So what we really have are these three miracles that demonstrate Jesus' power and authority over the physical world, over the spiritual world, and then over disease and death. And all three of those are going to be used to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. And so again, we kind of alternate. We go back and forth through this. This shows him as Messiah. This shows him as Son of God. And so today we're going to focus on the Son of God. So let's look at the first miracle here. Um, as we do this, what we're going to see is not just the divine nature of Christ, but we're, all going to see, we're also going to see how that relates to an expression of faith and what that might mean to us and to his audience. So let's look at um, chapter 4, starting in verse 35. I'll read this first one here, down through verse 41. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushions. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we have this first miracle here. Jesus had just finished a long day of teaching the masses on the shores of the lake or the Sea of Galilee, and he decides to get into a boat and cross the sea to the other side. So he's going from the west side 
over to the east side. It's about an eight-mile trip. And so he asks his disciples to get into a boat. They're going to make their way across the sea. Notice in this particular account, he mentions that there's more than one boat. So it's literally not just Jesus and the disciples in their boat, but there's other boats that are joining them as well. If I remember correctly, I don't think the other Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke, don't mention that. In this case, Mark mentions that there's multiple boats. And so while they're sailing this eight-mile journey across the sea, it says that a fierce gale of wind came up. Now the words Mark uses to describe this refer to a sudden and violent storm with gale force winds. Now what makes this interesting is normally evening, which is what it is right now, is the best time to fish because the seas are normally calmest at night. And so fishermen would typically go out at night. However, when storms do arise, the most violent ones happen in the evenings. Although the way the Sea of Galilee is laid out is they've got, basically they're surrounded by mountains except on the southwest side. And what happens is wind begins to come in from the southwest side. And you can imagine as it rushes down and into this valley, it can create these monster storms with huge waves, incredible gale force or hurricane strength winds. And that's exactly what happens here. They go out on the boat. They probably set out when it's really calm. But then while they're out there, all of a sudden, one of these gale force storms come upon them. It says that the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Matthew says that the boat had become swamped and was in danger of sinking. What we see next is a demonstration of Jesus' power in this particular instance. Um, If this event weren't so serious, it would almost be somewhat comical. And the reason for that is because, think about this for a moment. You have a bunch of these fishermen who are used to being out on the boat in the water. They know what these storms can do. They've been in these storms before. And so you have them out there. And then you have a carpenter. Who's the people freaking out? (laughs) It's the fishermen. The carpenter is asleep in the boat. It says even on a pillow. That's a good question. How could you sleep during that? You know? Now, the obvious answer is this is the Son of God. He's got nothing to fear, right? Um, And as we'll see, his sleeping actually serves a purpose here. Um, So you get this panic going on. You have these disciples that are now panicking. And they approach Jesus. They wake him up. They're perturbed because he's asleep. And they actually rebuke him. Notice in verse 38, it says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There's a bit of irony in that, again, because of course Jesus cares, right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Jesus came, we know that the purpose is to go to the cross. Obviously he cares, so there's a bit of irony there, but they don't see it because all they see is their teacher in the boat, asleep, When they're all panicking, probably trying to bail water out, they're probably grabbing things, they probably pulled the sail down to try to keep the wind from blowing the ship crazy. And so they see Jesus there and they're like, don't you care? Now, he's a carpenter, what did they expect him to do? He wasn't a fisherman. But somehow, they expect him to do something. It's not really clear what they expected him to do. But they expected him to do something. Now, the words that they use there, when you look into it, it's actually a rebuke. Um, 
They're not just saying, can't you help us, Jesus? They're legitimately upset that he's not doing anything. And they're rebuking him for not being awake. They're rebuking him. They're disturbed and perturbed at what he's doing. So what does Jesus do? Well, it says at verse 39 that he gets up and he rebukes the wind. He says to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind dies down and it becomes perfectly calm. So not only does he supernaturally calm the storm, but you know how he does it? Two words in the Greek. English is three. Hush, be still. Harkens back to what we find in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be. Notice that when Jesus casts out demons, he simply does it with a word. Doesn't lay hands on them, doesn't put his fingers in their ears and wiggle their ears, you know. He doesn't put his hands on them and push them down like we see the televangelists do as they're casting out demons and healing people on stage. He usually does it with a word. Now we have some examples where he spits on his fingers and touches people sometimes. We'll get into that a little bit later. But most of the time it's with a word. Imagine what the disciples must have thought when they saw that. All of a sudden it goes from boat filling up to winds and possibly lightning and everything else and they wake him up he's rubbing his eyes alright stop be still and everything calms down this word for rebuke is I think important here it's the same word Jesus uses when he casts out demons the word rebuke actually refers to issuing a command and represents authority over that which is being rebuked so what we see here is Jesus is demonstrating specifically, I have authority to control nature. Go to the book of Colossians, it says that all things were created through him, by him, and for him. Everything we see belongs to Christ. It all bows down to him. In fact, we are even told that if we didn't speak up, what would? It says even the rocks will cry out, because all of nature ultimately is in subjection to the one who created it. And you go back to, again, Genesis chapter 1, and you find that Christ was active in creation. It wasn't God the Father. It was, let us make. And so you find that what Christ is doing here is he's demonstrating that he is divine. Because only the Son of God, only the one who created, has the right to control or to rebuke or to be able to stand up and say, hush, be still. And immediately like that, creation obeys. What an event that must have been for the disciples to see. Look at verse 40. Not only does this event reveal Christ's deity, but it actually reveals something about the nature of faith. Because look at what happens. In verse 40 he says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, why would he say, do you still have no faith? What have they seen so far? They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal people. They've seen, um, well, they, they may or may not have been present when the dove descended from heaven upon him and the heavens opened up and this voice says, eh, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. So they've seen all these things. But 
What's interesting about this is he doesn't say, why were you afraid, but why are you afraid? They are still afraid sitting in the boat at this point. We find out in a little bit here that they were not just afraid because of what happened with the waves, but they're now afraid because of what they've just seen Jesus do. Look at verse 41. We'll come back. But verse 41 says, They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So when Jesus says in verse 40, Why, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? By this time, the expectation is that they should have already recognized who Jesus Christ was. Um, we're going to be looking in a few weeks at the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And Jesus does some really interesting things with that. He uses both of those events to try to prove to the disciples that he is God in the flesh. And what's interesting about that is there's four references in the Old Testament where God provided food for the Israelites. And Jesus does the same thing, and he expects the disciples to be going, wow, he's got to be God because he's doing the same thing God did in the Old Testament with making the manna and um, the, the oil and the, and the bread that he multiplies for the poor widow. And we see Jesus multiplying bread. And so he's gonna, we're going to even see that even when he gets to that, the disciples are still struggling with their faith. And I think what that actually proves to us is that seeing and believing are two different things. Clearly the disciples have seen. They know something is unique. They're following Jesus. They gave up fishing to some degree to follow him. But yet they're still struggling with faith. So again, seeing and believing aren't always necessarily the same thing. There are five instances in the book of Mark where Jesus rebukes his apostles for this. Five times. Where he basically says, you still don't get it? You still don't see who I am? I've just calmed the storm by just speaking. And you're still afraid. And it's because they still didn't quite understand who he was. I wonder if that represents, in some respects, our faith sometimes. Seeing is not always the same thing as exercising faith. Think about the difficulties we've seen in the last... um, few months with just people we know. We think about Matt and Gina and the loss of their daughter and the difficulty that that puts us under as we start to think about faith. Um, we think about Brian and Wendy Johnson and what happened uh, to Wendy and how difficult it sometimes becomes to trust and to believe that God is going to do what he needs to do. We face that all the time, don't we? It's not remarkable, I don't think, that James, when he is addressing his readers on trials, starts off by reminding them, look back at what God has done. That's the way he starts the book. It's a paraphrase, but he says, consider it all joy when encountering various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So what James does is he basically says, when you're struggling with faith, when you're struggling with trust, you need to look back at what God has done as a demonstration of those things. And that was what the disciples here were somewhat struggling with. 
They had seen all these things, but it hadn't crossed over from simply seeing to now actually believing. True, genuine, honest faith. In fact, one of the climaxes of the book of Mark, in fact, this is, I'm approaching that passage in my study right now. Um, there's a very long section in Mark that involves the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, some other things, the healing of the, um, the Phoenician woman, the healing of the blind man, the deaf mute, some things that all kind of go together that are all leading up to answering the question, who is Jesus in your mind? And it culminates with Peter being asked that very question, who do you say I am? And Peter finally gets it and goes, oh, you're the Christ. And it's part of the, one of the climaxes in the book. But it takes Peter and the disciples a long time to get there. And that's kind of, in some respects, what we see today is that, again, seeing isn't always the same thing as faith. And sometimes we see, but we still have trouble exercising faith. Maybe not so much for salvation, but in everyday life. And so here these disciples are sitting on this boat, and it says that they became very much afraid. And they're looking at Jesus saying, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They've seen, but they haven't quite made it to that point of faith, if you will, in spite of what they've seen. So what we have in this first miracle here, I believe, is two things. One of them is a demonstration that Jesus is the Son of God. The second is, it takes more than just seeing sometimes to accept that. You need to get to the point of belief. And that's what the disciples are struggling with. Let's look at the second one that he does. It starts in chapter 5. And they came to the other side of the sea and the country of the, or the, country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs, and in the mountains, and gnashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you have with each, or what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, and the very man who had, been, who had had legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, 
go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis the things that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. So we have another miracle here where Jesus demonstrates power and authority over something. In this case, it's the spiritual realm. Matthew and Luke add some details to this. Um, Mark only includes one man here, but there's actually two demon-possessed men that are part of this discussion and dialogue. Mark focuses just on the one. There's a couple of times where Mark does that. Um, the passage I was working on yesterday, there's a whole mob that comes to Jesus, but Mark only focuses on one man. So he does it a couple of times. Not really sure why, but Mark likes detail, and sometimes he focuses in on sort of the, I'll call it the tree, not just the forest. This man, it says, actually lived in the tombs. These were caves in the mountainside. It was like a giant graveyard. He didn't live in a house. also says that he was naked. says that he hadn't put on any clothing for a long time. Good thing he lived in this part of Israel. <laughs> Couldn't live here in Ohio. So he was naked. It says that he was so violent that nobody could even pass by without suffering his abuse. He was a violent, violent man. Says that he was so strong that nobody could subdue him. They had tried by putting steel shackles and chains on him. These were things that bound your feet, that bound your arms, and they were connected with chains. Oftentimes there was a one around the neck as well. But it says that when they tried to do this, the guy would simply toss him off, break him. How strong do you think you would have to be to break steel shackles and chains? Obviously not a human feet, usually. It might have been. Probably empowered by the demonic spirits, right? Yeah, lived in a cage. It also said that night and day he would run around yelling and screaming and taking stones up and he would use these stones to cut himself and gnash himself, do physical damage to his body. What a strange sight that would have been. And so as Jesus gets to the shore, what happens? Notice that Jesus isn't the one that initiates the confrontation. It's actually the man who initiates the confrontation. When he sees the man, it says, from a distance, verse 6, he ran up and bowed himself before him. I think that's our first indication that even the demons recognize the authority of Christ in this particular instance. When Jesus commands the demon to leave the man, the demon attempts attempts to actually resist. There's an interesting play that happens here. Because the demon actually tries to exercise control over Christ. So even though he knows that he's supposed to be in subjection to Christ, he attempts to demonstrate his own authority over Christ. And we see that in a couple of ways. Notice it says, And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Because Christ had been saying, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. There's a couple of things that happen here. It was common belief in Jesus' day that to exercise authority over spiritual beings, you had to know their name. That in knowing their name, you now somehow could exercise control over them. You'll notice that Jesus, in the passage, asks the demon what his name is. But not only that, the demon here refers to Jesus Christ, not just by his name, but by his title. What the demon is attempting to do is to exercise control over Christ by referring to him in his first name and his title. 
Notice he also tries to put Christ under an oath. He says, I implore you by God. So he calls upon the name of God, tries to um, force Christ under an oath to a particular behavior, to restrict him. He basically says, don't torment me. And I implore you by God not to do it. That was pretty important to the Jewish audience. To bind somebody by oath under God was a form of exercising control. And so that's what we see the demon trying to do here. Do you notice what he says? What business do we have with each other? In other words, why are you all up in my business, Jesus? What right do you have? I'm here, I got my guys, I'm possessing these dudes. What right do you have? This is none of your business. It's also interesting, the comment here about tormenting me, we'll see why that's important in a minute. Jesus obviously is having nothing to do with it. If you look at verses 9 through 13, you'll see that Jesus actually asks him for his name. The man says his name is Legion, for we are many. I think this, I don't think it's required. I think Jesus was simply living by the tradition, knew that by asking the name, in people's mind, he was exercising control, demonstrating control over the demon. It wasn't required. Jesus doesn't need to know his name. In other places, he cast out demons without asking their names. But in this particular instance, you see the demon do it. People would have recognized that. And so Jesus, by asking for his name here, is demonstrating his authority over the demon. But it also reveals the magnitude of the man's possession. We're talking here likely thousands of demons, as the name represents. So this man had a mess going on. The fact that they go off into a herd of 2,000 pigs might indicate the number as well. And so, in asking him his name, Jesus is not only demonstrating his authority, but he's also demonstrating the magnitude to this man's possession, what was involved here. So the demon actually begs Jesus not to send him and his other demons out of the country. That's an interesting statement, too. It tells us something about the demonic world. Um, it was a pretty common belief back then that demons controlled regions or areas, geographic areas. That may very well be the case. I don't know that I would build a complete theology on that. Washington, D.C., <laughs> as Dustin mentions. Um, I think we could probably clearly... Um, and I think rationally say that when you look at certain parts of the world where you see significantly more demonic activity out in the open, that those areas are controlled by demonic presence. I think it just shows. Now, that doesn't mean that other parts of the world, like the United States, aren't controlled by demons. They work in many different ways to deceive, do they not? But if we also recognize and understand um, the spiritual realm and you look at the battles that take place in the end, um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that demons very well likely do control regions. And so we find here that they beg Jesus not to send them out of the region, not to cast them away, but instead to go off into these pigs. And so Jesus actually does that. 
He gives them permission. And what happens? They go off into this herd of 2,000 pigs and they ultimately run off a cliff and drown in the sea. Pigs know what are going on. And they obviously freak out as a result. Enough to where they run off over a cliff and kill themselves. Something pigs would not, would not normally do. Okay? The question that I have with this as I was working through this is why would Jesus give them permission? Why would he do that? Turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Matthew 8, 29. Matthew records the interaction between Jesus and Legion a little differently. Notice what he says in verse 29. And they cried out, these are the demons, saying, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? But then Matthew adds this little detail here that Mark does not. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. That, I think, is key here. If you insert that, what's that? Yeah, before the appointed time. I want you to turn to Luke Chapter 8, verse 31. Same thing, but Luke, or same event, but Luke adds another detail that Mark does not. Verse 30, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he says, legion for many demons had entered him. Look at verse 31. They were imploring him not to command them to go away. Don't make us go out of the area. But in this case, away into the abyss. You know what the abyss is? It's a bottomless pit. Bottomless pit. It's the bottomless pit where, where God, prior to the millennium, when Jesus Christ returns, it says that he confines Satan and his demons to the bottomless pit. For a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, the Lord opens up the abyss to let them back out and then destroys them, judges them. So basically what we have is there is an appointed time in God's plan where Satan and his demons will be locked up, sent into the abyss confined, not allowed to do anything on the earth. And what these demons are doing is they're looking at Christ and they're saying, wait a minute, it's not the time yet. It's not your, the time hasn't come for you to put us into torment, to lock us up in the abyss. The reason why Jesus permitted them was because it wasn't time. It just wasn't time yet. Everything in God's redemptive plan has a time. And it wasn't quite time yet. Jesus, we're told, had come simply to bind the strong man. Not to destroy the strong man yet, but to bind him. To take away some of his power and his authority so that he might plunder his house. The time had not come yet to judge the demons, to judge Satan, to lock him up in the abyss where he would sit for a thousand years. So Jesus 
recognizing that it's not quite time yet, permits the demons to to leave the man and to go into the pigs and to ultimately run off the cliff. So what are we looking at when we look at this event here? Obviously, it reveals the deity of Christ because only the Lord could do what he did. I I kind of get a kick out of um, when I see some within within some, I'll call them charismatic or Pentecostal circles, um, talk to Satan. You know, the, the idea of um, binding him and casting out demons and some of that stuff. And I think to myself, do you not remember the instance where some followers of Jesus did that and the guy beat him up as a result? It's an episode in the scriptures where they attempt to cast out the demon and he's not having anything to do with it. He beats the guys up. You have, I think it's the book of Jude, that says that even some of the angels are careful at rebuking the enemy. It's not to be messed with. Um, The only one that has that authority to do that is God is Christ. And so clearly this instance, this episode, Mark is included here. Remember, he's, he's grouped three of these events together, all to prove Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. His first one is exercising authority over nature. The second is exercising authority over the spiritual realm. And so clearly this is designed to show that he's the Son of God, but again, it has an element of revealing faith to us. Because Mark actually records two responses to this event, both which have to do with faith. If you look at um, verses 14 through 17 here. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion... And then he came frightened. So here it is. He's, they all knew about this guy. They all tried to avoid the guy. They tried to avoid this area because they knew if they went, they'd likely face his violence. But all of a sudden they hear that this has happened, and so they come out to see it, and they see it with their own eyes. And the way that Mark describes this, he's trying to drive home a point. They see this guy in his right mind. The very man, he says. So Paul's trying to stress, they're looking at this guy, there's no way they cannot see exactly what happened, and their response is, not praise God, but now they're frightened. Do you remember the disciples' response in the boat? They were frightened. They had seen, but had not produced faith necessarily. And so these individuals are frightened as well. They are so frightened, it says here, those who had described it, verse 16 to them, and how it had happened, and all about the swine, as a result, what happens? Verse 17, the town folk begin to beg him to leave their area. The language that's used here is that they implored him over and over and over, and, and the other little nuance that shows up in the Greek text is that they expected it to be permanently They beg Jesus, get out of our area and don't come back. You would think they would go, wow, praise God, he just saved us from these demon-possessed maniacs. 
But instead, it is, you need to leave, you need to leave now, and don't ever come back. So it produced fear rather than faith. Seeing is not always the same thing as believing. He has just demonstrated his authority over a menace in their area. And it produces fear. There's another response, however. And it happens to relate to the man who actually experienced this gift. Verse 18, And he was getting into the boat, or I'm sorry, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. I love this. They were imploring him to leave. This man is imploring to go with Jesus. He wanted to accompany him. The language that's used here implies that he was begging Jesus over and over to go with him and to go with him to be with him permanently. In other words, Jesus, I want to stay with you. I want to go with you. But it says here in verse 19 that he did not let him go. Instead, he says, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. What's interesting about this is so we have the man who experienced this, the man who had been tormented, who finally now has relief. He didn't just witness it, he didn't just see it, but he experienced it for himself. Out of this whole entire passage, he's the only one that demonstrates faith. Maybe because he's the only one that really genuinely experienced it. He didn't just see it, but he experienced it. You notice something else that becomes, I think, paramount here is when Jesus tells him to go report it. There's times where Jesus says, don't tell anyone. In this case, he's telling this guy, go. But you notice what he adds to that. He says, go report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. One One of the greatest witnesses we have as Christians is to simply tell people what the Lord has done for us. That is what drives our witness. When we talk out of our experience, not just out of what we've seen, but out of our experience, that becomes an effective witness. When I was led to Christ, I was led to Christ by a guy who had had come to Christ himself um, after he'd been in a fairly serious car accident where the three guys he was traveling with were all dead around him as he waited for a few hours to be um, removed from the vehicle with the jaws of life. Um, And to hear him talk about what Christ had done to save him um, was a pretty powerful witness to me. Moved me enough to where I made my own decision for Christ. But then when I began to see what Christ did for me, that becomes now the basis of my faith. Not Bob and his car accident or what Christ did for him. And that's exactly what we see here with this man. So Mark is doing this interesting thing here. He's trying to set up this contrast in some respects between the townspeople and what they had seen and what this man had seen. 
And so in this particular instance, this you know, Jesus' demonstration of authority over the demonic world and rescuing this man from his spiritual condition, while that may have frightened the townspeople and led them to beg Jesus to leave, did not result in faith. Their sight did not become belief. In this instance, this man's experience ultimately leads to faith. And we see that a couple of times in the Gospel of Mark where you get this tension in some respects. All these people who don't believe and then the rare occasion that does. In fact, in the section I was working through um, the last few weeks, um, from Mark chapter 6 on through Mark chapter 8, it's interesting how the crowds are set up as not believing, and how the Pharisees are set up as not believing, and how the disciples are shown not to believe, even if Jesus, even when Jesus says, Haven't you gotten it yet? I just fed the 4,000. I just fed the 5,000. You're not getting it yet. But then you get this little f- passage on the Phoenician woman who comes to him to be healed that even seems to understand an Old Testament concept of God blessing the nations through Israel because she's the one that says, you know, basically, can, can you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, I came to the house of Israel. I can't give to the dogs what belongs to the children. And she's like, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, what great faith you have. She seemed to understand God's plan to bless the nations. In fact, Matthew records in that same event that the Gentile crowds actually begin to glorify the God of Israel. They experienced it. And so you get this play uh, in Mark's Gospel where um, we see stuff like this, where some respond with fear. Their sight does not become faith, while others, their experience, ultimately becomes faith. It goes from seeing to believing because of what Jesus did for them.